Okay, it is Monday, March 23rd, 2020, and we've got a very special guest today, Dave Walker, who is an electronic engineer, electronics engineer from the UK near Oxford, and he's a famous Instagram camera builder is how we know about him. Um, we're going to do something a little bit different this week because of the times we are living in. Um, we're going to open sort of talking about what we've all been up to with Dave, and then we'll get on to... Um, specifically Dave's camera building and LCD shutters. Hey, Dave, welcome. Hello. Um, so what have you guys all been up to this week in the times of uh, quarantine? Hey, Ethan, why don't you start us off? I think that yours is a little bit more. Uh, let's start with the high notes and then we can go down. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's high so, notes. Well, uh, I yeah, uh, you've been doing some stuff that's a little bit more important than um, uh, just making cameras. So you want to talk about that? Yeah, I you know, I feel a little bit bad because of uh, this this podcast. Uh, I've gone real sideways, Andre Dominguez on you. And the last couple of weeks I've been talking about making pens and notebooks and had perfectly planned to come back to building cameras this week on the new giant laser cutter down at the. Uh, workshop, but um, I kind of got derailed. Uh, there's not power being run this week because nobody's down there because everybody's sort of on lockdown here. Uh, I spent a day cleaning out a old inventory room so that Laura could work from home. And then, um, you know, in the last week, I think I've sold like a hundred dollars worth of orders from Camera Dactyl. It is totally dead. And so I've been thinking, okay, like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Is Laura sitting on a stack of photographer's jeans? Uh, is that no. her chair? Is that what no. you made? There is no. behind her a stack of photographer's jeans ominously piled to the ceiling that I hope oh, will not rush her. They could topple at mm. any moment. Okay, I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> um, yeah, so Laura's working from home, and um, I have basically, you know, I went from running printers around the clock and scrambling to fill orders to nobody's buying cameras and reasonably so. And so just kind of thinking like, what are some new products to make um, that I can spend this time, you know, developing without the pressure of having to assemble some things. I still need to get a few things that are printed out the door, but um, I became aware of a bunch of crowdsourced open source ventilator projects. So um, one of the problems with coronavirus is that at some point, a lot of patients are unable to breathe for themselves. Um, and there's just not that many ventilators out there. Um, like New York State has a few hundred, and they think they're going to need something like 16,000, which is a lack of, you know, 15,500 ventilators in New York State alone. Um, and so there have been people building ventilators and ventilator parts and systems all over the world. And... Um, you know, I, I thought I build fluid control things and electromechanical things and know a little bit about 3D printers. I might be medium helpful. Um, and so I've kind of just taken the time to, um, one, make some thoughts and schematics of an entire ventilator system, not because I will ever get there. I will hope that somebody beats me to the punch, much like Matt Bettberger. Maybe Matt will beat me to the punch. Um, but but more seriously, um, I think a lot of the electromechanical systems in a 
DIY ventilator are um, based around off-the-shelf parts. And things like Amazon's no longer taking um, inbound third-party orders, which means like it's our supply chain. One, we may not have in America um, 500,000 NEMA stepper, motor, stepper motors or um you know, two million, depending upon how many stepper motors need to go into each ventilator, um, or they might be stuck on a truck somewhere. You know, I like to celebrate Chinese Hanukkah, where I order a whole ton of electronics parts from AliExpress, forget about them, and then two months later, every single day for a month, I get some <laughs> package of Arduino parts. But um, those shipping times, right now, the lead times are in June through August, and and so. I worry that a lot of off-the-shelf parts for larger designs, um, like open-source designs based upon a um, ventilator made by either Rice or MIT in about 2010 that works on an Ambu bag, uh, which is basically like a pump bulb that you squeeze like for priming a boat gas tank or siphoning gas out of a car. Um, I worry about things like that just not being available in quantity. So um, the first thing I did was sort of draw up a sketch of how my ventilator would work, right? And that's basically just to inform myself of what pieces need to be used and made to build a ventilator. Um, and then from that, thinking that I won't ever get to build a full ventilator, I've just been building one piece at a time that I think will be useful and can replace common off-the-shelf parts either one, you know, if we run out or we don't have enough time to get them. And two, just to speed other designers up so that, you know, somebody designing a ventilator now does not have to make a new file for a check valve. They don't have to wait for McMaster car or, you know, AliExpress or Amazon to deliver one. In fact, you can make one for 35 cents now in uh, an hour and 10 minutes, maybe three minutes of assembly. And so... <clears throat> I guess the first thing I made was a check valve. It's the simplest flap valve. It's, you know, on just about any fluid control system, be it, you know, fluid or gas. Um, or a bagpipe. Yeah, right. They're, they're in accordions. They're in everything. And they're, <sighs> they're stupid simple. But That means that we have an excuse to tear apart every bagpipe that's out there. No. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> The bagpipes are good. So oh, okay. They're not playing okay. right now. Um, okay. Yeah, so I started out with the check valve. Um, my friend Joe and I spent an entire day before I had like a working check valve. But again, you know, you can run this off the printers in on one printer. You can make it in an hour and 10 minutes uh, in two printers. You can make it in 40 minutes. And it takes like no time to assemble. Um, and I, I think that's sort of just a very basic building block component. The next thing I did was make a PEEP valve, which is the um, positive ending expiratory pressure valve, which basically when the patient exhales, you still keep a positive pressure on their lungs, much like when you put a weight down, you don't pull the weight down or just drop it. You still are pushing up when you're putting the weight down, but just pushing up less than the weight is pushing down. And that's basically so people's lungs don't collapse. And so it's, it's basically like a little pressure regulator valve. And my design I thought was clever enough. It uses, again, a big pen spring, much like the Bronco pen. Um, I've been destroying a lot of pens for their springs lately. Um, and it 
basically pushes a check valve diaphragm against an orifice plate, uh, and you can adjust the tension on the spring to adjust the pressure that it takes to overcome that um, flap on the orifice so it can uh, exhale. And so you can set like basically a minimum pressure, but it's not a great design. At very low pressures, it will leak. And somebody cleverly pointed out on YouTube that um, I could just use a tube at a variable height in water to adjust the peep pressure. And so I think that is a much better idea. I've talked to some doctors who were like, the optics on that is terrible. And I was like, I don't care about optics. I care about functionality. Optics is some Donald Trump shit I don't want any part of. And so um, I made that peep valve. I think some people might use it. I've been encouraging people to use a tube in a tube of water um, and disregard that design. And then I think the one that I'm working on now is just about every um, DIY ventilator that I've seen out there um, follows two tracks. One is sort of modifying a CPAP or a BiPAP machine or something like um, an electric air mattress inflator where you're <laughs> running um, you're running a blower motor at different speeds to achieve different pressures. And I think that's actually like a very clever method. Um, that is not the style of ventilator that I'm working down. Um, the other style is uh, basically an Arduino timed pump and monitor for what's called an ambu bag, which is this big bulb uh, with some check valves on it and you squeeze it and it sucks air in from one side and it blows air out to the other side. Um, like and, yeah, exactly. I mean, a heart is nothing but a pump. Um, a pump is nothing but a backwards motor. You know, uh, the, the shapes that you wind up making are very familiar biologically or even, you know, in terms of car engines. Um, so I've been worried about sort of alternates for the ambu bag. So the other day I came up with a system that did not work very well as a full system, but I did build a valve body that is the head of a piston. So it's got um, two check valves, one in and one out, and a common uh, orifice to a bag or a cylinder or a pump. I have made two, three prototypes now of the bag. Right, The, the cool thing about the ambu bag is it's like a ball, right? But when you squeeze it, it's made of a certain type of rubber that just pops back out. And I think I could 3D print one out of TPU, but it'd be really slow and not everybody can print TPU and it's not in huge supply like PLA. And so I've tried, you know, accordion bellows and bag bellows. I'm going to try a bag, excuse me, a bagged piston. And then I might even try a 3D printed piston. I was watching YouTube videos last night of um, a guy building an air pump for his little balloon powered uh, calliope, which was amazing. And, you know, it's like a little ridiculous that I think I'm building medical equipment and watching people build 3d printed calliopes, but clever mechanisms. Um, anyway, I need to figure out the piston and then, you know, I've been just releasing YouTube videos every time I complete a part, hoping again that I will never get to build an entire unit, but that I will build many, necessary precursor components for other people to, you know, even in their prototype, not wait three days for something to come from McMaster car or, you know, Amazon or whatever, but, you know, just pop this thing on the printer and in an hour have a component that they don't have to worry about designing for a day. 
is there um, a, a central place that uh, people who are working on this are communicating? Is there so a it's really website or something? Interesting that you should say that. And I think it's like maybe a little bit cart before the horse. There are multiple um, crowdsourced projects out there. The one that I'm using, and we'll drop a link in the show notes, I guess, even though it'll come out in a few weeks, uh, is hashtag Project Open Air um, is one. And then there's the Covent Challenge, C-O-V-E-N-T. Um, and there's a bunch of different groups working on it. I find that these places are like pretty disorganized uh, because there's a lot of people who want to put in their two cents, me included, right? I don't, I'm worried sometimes. I, I only like putting out sort of videos about finished products where you can go grab the files for free or modify the files, you know, when I'm done. And, and that's basically not to muddy the waters, right? To give people a part when they can take it. Um, so yeah, the, the project open air uh, and the Covent project. And then there's also a Facebook group, which is open source COVID-19 medical supplies or open source ventilators. Um, those Let's are- Let's say it again, oh, open source. Yeah, let, let me, uh, give me one second. Yeah. This is uh, yeah. important that I get right. So what's needed is essentially an index to parts that people who are actually assembling these can can locate some options. Right. Yeah, exactly. So and and not only so that they can locate options, I think, um, so that if the supply of one thing, right, one type of check valve that you've ordered from McMaster runs out or Amazon stops shipping for a week, you know, um, I can make. I don't know, 300 of these things in a day in my shop if I wanted. You know, and to be clear, I'm not in production. I'm not making anything that's medically useful at this point. I'm just making things that are engineering useful. Um, okay. Hey, so the Facebook group that's also a cool one is Open Source COVID-19 Medical Supplies. And they have a lot of different medical supplies that people are building. A lot of people are making cool-looking Halloween masks, which I think are uh, doing harm. Um, I think there's simpler, less cool looking mask designs that are, you know, either just sewn or, you know, a ring that holds uh, filter material to your face rather than like vacuum cool cleaner looking. bags. Yeah. Vacuum cleaner yeah. bags. But you know, there's some cool stuff out there. Pressa put out a face shield clip that you could put in like a two liter soda bottle, uh, plastic. Oh. Some people are sewing things or face masks, um, which are like simple and more immediate need. But anyway, um, these, I guess these central groups have some organization and eventually I hope will adopt like one, one architecture uh, at a top level. Like this is what the thing is going to do. These are the components and then they should break out um, engineering groups for each component, right? Instead of holding uh -huh. a design contest uh, to build a ventilator, what they should do is after this, right, uh, adopt an architecture and then hold uh -huh. a design contest for 100 people to de design, you know, the fastest printing uh, manual shutoff valve, the fastest right. printing peep valve, the fastest printing pump, yada, yada. Um, yeah. And then bring it together and then 
make sure that the code is component agnostic, which means like you could switch a few variables in the code if the pump switches from like a squeezed bag to a pumped bellows, right? Because you're using the same motor in a different configuration um, with a different, you know, a uh, different number of motor steps that is going to move left or right to achieve the certain um, pressure or pumping. Anyway, I think this is pretty interesting. I think going forward, there's some value, and this is real cart before the horse because we have like a pressing, pressing need to do this now and really like right. the future is a little crazy right now. But I, I, I want to think that, you know, I've, I've been designing everything in on shape uh, because it's a free, so long as it's open and non-commercial um, CAD software online. And so anybody can not only download and use my files, but they can edit the files with a free Onshape account. So like I made all of the ports for my valves parametric. So if you're using 22 millimeter, you know, uh, ventilator hose, great. If you can only find garden hose at 25 or, um, you know, uh, plumbing tubing at 15, right? You can just change a number and print the appropriate valve with the right hose bars. Anyway, I think it would be really interesting if a company like that were to partner with um, sort of like a medical research institution um, to build an open source library of uh, basically medical machine parts um, and then a super library of the medical machines that you could build out of those parts, right? So like that library would be sort of vetted and tested machines like a ventilator or you know, uh, just sort of like a leg pump circulator or uh, ambu bag, or yeah, I've been thinking about a lot of ventilation things, but there's a lot of sort of basic, basic medical supplies that would be useful, like um, either like if you're far away from a large supply of medical supplies, like maybe in the third world, or if you're on a research station in Antarctica, or if you're on a space station, although there's some problems with current 3d printing technology onto the space station. Um, <laughs> but, but you could see like there are plenty of places in the world where like you don't have Amazon to deliver a check valve, um, uh -huh. let alone a entire ventilator. And so, you know, it's a multi-million dollar project to like just coordinate the thing, even if people are willing to do the pieces for free, right? It needs at least animal testing. Um, and there's all sorts of liability issues. And I, you know, I really hope that none of this will ever get used because GE will step in and make a pre-approved uh, FDA licensed ventilator right. in the millions, but we will see. And I, I think there's real value in, you know, um, people contributing open source components and then like at some higher level, people writing programs uh, for control of those components and making um, instructional videos and and documents on how to, you know, you need to print valve number three, valve number seven, you know, piston arm number eight, and then these are how they go together, and this is how you make this device. Um, and so, you know, pie in the sky, I, I would... I don't think I ever want to stop making cameras, but I think that is a really, it, this sort of pandemic has, has woken me up to, um, like, I think there's a real 
good use of uh, CAD design and 3D printing on, on sort of like open source marketplace. Anyway, so, that's what I'm So I have about. Two, com two comments on that, Ethan. Um, one, the big suppliers like uh, so far have been talking about months needing many months to get yeah. ready to produce stuff because we have one of the things that's different between now and World War II when they converted auto plants into tank plants in a matter of weeks yeah. is that in those days, a factory was made up of hundreds and hundreds of skilled machinists. And, and now our factories are um, in some ways more flexible. They're full of robots, but the transition times aren't necessarily faster at all because of the complexity. I mean, the other and, thing is the manufacturing precursors, right? So like anything even that's made in the USA, right? It's raw materials or the precursor components are not exactly the USA. And exactly. so like, you know, their lead times are the same as mine on a boatload of check valves. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I think there's more and more uh, opportunity for this kind of crowdsourcing to be a real uh, emergency uh, backstop to create things that are needed. And maybe masks will be what happened fastest. But I think what you're doing is going to matter. I just want to say in the Seattle area, local engineers and medical people have been inventing things for themselves because they don't have help coming from outside and they've been breaking the rules and made a real difference. Um, so I think this is a real thing. I don't think what you're talking about is far fetched at all. I think it's going to be important. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think the, the issue is right. Like already uh, New York and uh, Washington state don't have enough ventilators. Right. And, and they're doing hacks and they're making their ventilators cover multiple patients, but like still they're, we're already overwhelmed in certain places. And so mm -hmm. it is really, you know, like I usually feel some financial pressure to put out a camera model every couple of months and not like let it linger on forever and ever because eventually I got to sell something. But this is like, it's, you know, it's so arrogant of me to feel like um, a pressure like anybody actually needs these things that I'm making when they don't actually even go to a working machine. You know, I want to make it very clear, like, don't start printing out my pieces and bringing them to hospitals. They're useless like that. You know, do use them in your engineering projects. But um, I think we're we're already I've, I've been feeling like a very crushing pressure to accomplish some things quick and publish quick um not shoddy but but i think like we're already under the gun and i think maybe in the future it would be amazing had they already been designed and instead of me going into design mode i could start manufacturing 10 things a day mm -hmm. right as as could like you know the bronco pan maybe 600 people bought 3d printers for the purpose of building that camera um, and I have like an email bully pulpit, um, and maybe a little bit of charm and like, you know, okay, those people don't have 14 printers running in their backyard, but they got one. And many of them, I suspect have four. Um, I think, you know, and, and they're widespread geographically. Yes. You know, and like, okay, we can't produce the same amount. Like, I think we're producing like, uh, bombers in world war two, every 63 minutes is some stat I read, you know, we're not going to make them like that, but, uh, I don't know, maybe there's a million people in this country with a 3d printer. Like if we each made one 
ventilator one day, like that would be enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It seems like wildly um, untested, right? So like not only do designs need to be vetted by the FDA, but like also your manufacturing process. Um, and so like what happens when you have a dude, you know, the dude who printed the Camerdactyl Bronco pan two millimeters thicker somehow. And, you know, we went back and forth for a couple of days and then he reprinted it. Perfect. I don't know what happened. Like what happens? And part of it is like, you need to design instruments that can be precision instruments without precision tolerances in their parts. But part of it is like, you know, at, at some level, if you have a million different manufacturers of something that one can save somebody's life or two kill them if it shuts off, um, you know, how do we, how, like, how do you vet that manufacturing process? And there, there's, you know, I think there's some real, like, um, some real reasons that you would push for a case of like distributed manufacturing. So like everybody print one, bring it to your local hospital. If you know, and, and assemble it and solder it together, whatever. Well, you'll yeah. have to add people will, this is going to take some time. We may not get there on this go round, but there needs to be a testing uh, step in the process. Well, that's right. So, forward so there that. needs to be like, um, and, and this is why like some giant medical nonprofit or conglomerate, like I was just talking to, my oldest friend is a is a doctor at CHOP in Philadelphia, and um, she's got a friend who's an ER doc at CHOP and HOP, which are the hospitals of Philadelphia. Um, and I was talking to him about how ventilators work, and he was talking about, um, you know, doing some work with an animal testing lab and, like, how they are basically shut down, but for COVID-19 research. And he was interested in testing some open-source ventilators on pigs before we start deploying them in the field and killing humans, which I think is reasonable depending upon, you know, I, I feel like that's a reasonable use of animal testing. Some people might not, but that's not really where I want to get into right now. But, like, that is a design uh, test, right? The the long-term goal, which we really don't have, you know, much time for now is like not only to build a design test is to build another machine that would test each manufactured part for let's say 10 hours before you say, okay, this ventilator works. Right. And so like the testing equipment needs to be developed and open source. And then exactly the testing equipment needs to be tested against hundreds of these things. And then you need to like build it, you know, foolproof enough way that like anybody can build the test machine, anybody can build the machine machine, anybody can use the test machine to verify the regular machine before, you know, giving. But keep in mind, keep in mind, there's a difference between this and the automated process. There's a human being applying their uh, their intelligence and skill at each of the, you know, that's very close in level, which is how the old machine shops worked. Yeah, but and old so machine shops had had skilled people like for ninety bucks. Right, and, and so you guys are working. Can... You guys are working on the skill part right now, and that's important. Let's get some skill back in the world. I've been contributing um, this week uh, since we're doing the. What have we been doing this week? Um, I've I've helped hoard some toilet paper and paper towels. I know I am assisting the paper industry. So maybe that was too soon as a joke. Um, okay, so what 
what I think. Yeah, well, that's what we expect from you Floridians, I guess, at this point. That's right. That's right. We'll flood the beaches and and uh, say stupid things on TV. Um, let's see. So um, I am, uh, you know, I'm a college professor. I uh, am in the process of um, turning all my classes to online classes. I'm working from home. Um, and I probably have about the easiest time of it because I teach, uh, graphic design and web design. So I actually, um, you know, which are, you know, tailor made for online, um, instruction. So I have been, uh, at home going a little bit stir crazy, like pretty much everybody else. So I took out a, uh, four by five pinhole box. And, uh, and I'm switching this back to photography if you didn't uh, didn't catch that. Uh, so I've gone out and started taking pictures with that again. Um, I developed a backlog of, um, of negatives and I'm uh, slowly in the process of scanning. I talked last week about our last episode about um, my scanner dying and getting a new scanner and I'm very happy with the quality that I'm getting out of my Epson V700, especially for four by five scanning in one shot. That's pretty nice. Um, I also, I'm going to give a challenge a little bit later on uh, and I'll, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on for people who are also stuck at home and maybe don't have uh, some of the engineering background that people like Ethan do um, and uh, you know and a a way to use your your um, now empty cycles you know um, uh, the spare cycles that you have going on uh, which is kind of what uh, a lot of people are doing Um, so um, uh, Nick what have you been doing lately so I'm I've been looking longingly at cameras, but mostly focused on trying to get things organized. Uh, I'm just north of Seattle on an island. It's a good-sized island with five towns on it. Um, But we are pretty deep into the coronavirus epidemic here. Um, You know, people are dying, and there are a lot of people who are being diagnosed, even though there is very little testing available as yet. So uh, things are pretty tense around here. I think the thing that I've been most kind of looking at lately is um, the the whole issue of people understanding what's going on. And it's very striking because we're deeper into this than most of the rest of the country, uh, except for New York. And I have a sister who's living in Manhattan, uh, trapped in her apartment. She's also teaching online, as you are, Graham. She teaches Mm -hmm. English as a second language. And she has a severely compromised immune system, so she's under siege. And in this area, what I'm seeing is that even though uh, there's been a lot more kind of awareness that this is a real problem, there are still a ton of people, especially younger people, who don't understand the idea behind uh, staying in, staying away from other people. And there's sort of flocking out there. They've all decided that it's a great time to go hiking because they don't have to work. Um, and I have a lot of friends in the uh, 
in the basically in the business of rescuing people. And the problem with that is that there is a there are traffic jams of inexperienced people on the trails in the mountains. And this past weekend, uh, flocks and flocks of them found themselves out after dark without a headlamp, without adequate clothing in the snow. And the rescue people were going all night and they're upset about it because they're basically using up uh, protective equipment that our medical professionals are desperately in need of um, because even the, yeah. the, you know, even the rescue people have to take precautions. And these large numbers of young people have and have just don't understand the role that they are playing in spreading this disease in the area. They somehow think that they are safe and that it's going to be OK for them and they can go do whatever they want. And I think that that's widespread in other parts of the country, but it's especially perplexing here um, because, you know, we're pretty far into this thing. Um, I don't really understand. I think some of it is that too much of the jargon that's grown up around describing the situation is a little bit um, sterile and off sort of off the mark. Uh, so I thought of, of and also I think people have a hard time understanding statistics and numbers uh, so I just did a quick Google to see uh, how the mortality rate from COVID-19 compared to, let's say, something like the Vietnam War. And it appears that young the young cohort, if 50 percent, or I should say when 50 percent uh, become infected, uh, which they're you know eagerly working on making happen, their mortality rate will be equivalent to U.S. service peoples in the Vietnam War. That's with a 50% infection rate. Uh, they're the, and they're the supposedly safe people. People in my age cohort right. have a 10 times higher mortality rate, and my old friends are in a 50-50 situation of surviving. So maybe that'll clear things up a little bit for people um, if they think of it that way. That that's a standard wartime mortality rate for the young group and that that's really what we're looking at and i think that should maybe change things a little if you think about how much trauma the veterans experienced at that level we can expect to see that level of trauma uh, throughout the united states in a fairly short time well that's enough for the doom side of things in the meantime now for the gloom in the in the meantime a lot of people are uh, staying home and they're looking for ways to support each other and, you know, bring food to each other and that sort of thing. Uh, so there's a lot of positive going on here. Personally, my experience is I'm pretty well set up. Um, we have a tremendous amount of pollen at this time of year. So, of course, we're all experiencing respiratory symptoms just to make ourselves right. get a, little, a little more nervous. And, you know, I feel like we're all going to go through this pretty much. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see sort of how the social changes sweep through the country because they're coming. Right. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. So, so, uh, Dave, um, what have you been doing, um, uh, in, in the last week or two? <laughs> Uh, well, uh, in the in the UK, we're also uh, quite deep into this uh, coronavirus problem. Um, I think um, we, we've had a couple of hundred dead now, and we're five or six thousand confirmed cases. Um, I'm not sure everybody's taking it as seriously as they should do. But, you know, it's, it's a beautiful, sunny day today, and the uh, 
the butterflies are out and the flowers are blooming and it's, uh, it's lovely day for a walk. But, um, I think rather too many people are, are going out and getting near to each other at the, at the moment. Um, so for the last week and a half or, or two weeks, I've been working from home, uh, which is um, a challenge. Um, it's a, it's a smallish house and uh, there are now five of us in it and two cats. So I've got three small children aged seven, three and uh, ten months. Mm-hmm. Um, so finding a quiet space is difficult, which is why I'm sat in the car at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so yeah, we're, we're, you know, yesterday was Mother's Day, um, but uh, nobody could go and visit their mums. So that's, um, you know, that's different this year. Um, but uh, photography-wise, um, I haven't done a, a whole lot in the last couple of weeks. I, I did do some experiments with um, um, some direct positive paper and some monodars with, with an eye to the self-developing camera project. But um, yeah, 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 yeah. How did that go? Uh, uh, not well. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, every result is uh, is a result. It's, um, it doesn't have to work every time. Um, but uh, no standard. Standard DF96 monobath doesn't seem to develop um, um, harm and direct positive paper very well. Um, I did get some images that I could see during the development, but then um, it, I had to get the developer quite hot to, to get that before the fixer kicked in and killed everything. I have um, a friend who had good luck with D76, uh, the Kodak stuff. Uh, I'm perhaps, the, the, perhaps the standard developer. <laughs> what was that? Is that that's the standard developer rather than the monobar? Yeah, yeah, the standard developer. So, uh, but they used Harman uh, paper with uh, Kodak D seventy six paper developer, and it, it worked pretty well. Yeah, it, it, I, I've done it before with um, with um, well, whatever paper developer I had on hand, probably altered, uh, and it worked fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was just curious if I could um, make it work with a monobar to so, uh, um, was, it, was, it a, was it a fresh mixture? Uh, quite fresh. <laughs> a couple of weeks, but in a, in a sealed bottle with the, with the air pumps out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, okay. But no, it didn't work terribly well. <laughs> well, try again. I, yeah, I think that there's some promise there. I like the idea of, um, you know, for specifically for that self-developing camera uh, oh. concept. Um uh ethan what was that i would like to read you guys a journal entry that dave reminded me of from yesterday um working on a pump i tell laura that my experiment was a failure she tells me that no experiment is a failure it's a data point i raise my crumpled bag and uh with tape and rings on it i ask does this look like a data point to you she laughs and walks (laughs) out of the workshop Uh, sometimes my life is a data point. No, I, I've actually, I've been wondering for a long time about using monobath on uh, direct positive paper. I think that's something Joe Van Cleve and I have discussed plenty, but never, never gotten into. I think Dave's working down the, the right uh, course there. Do you, Dave, do you think it's um, something that you can tweak the process until it works, or do you think it's uh, relatively incompatible? Uh, I, I think with the monobath I had, um, I'd have to get it too hot, really, so it's, it's not practical. Um, but that's not to say one couldn't be developed that uh-huh. um, um, you know had a, a 
um, a longer buffer between the developer and the fix. Um, I think um, it it ought to be possible. It's, it's just uh -huh. a developer, and a fix. but um, I, I think have, the, the proportions are wrong. I have some of that FPP uh, monobath. Uh, I'll I'll give that a try. I have some direct positive. I'll give that a try over the next couple of days. Okay. So and uh, <laughs> and I'll let y'all know. So. Um, so what do you guys say? Um, let's start the cheeriest homemade camera podcast ever. Yeah, we're about an hour and a half in. Yeah, let's start. <laughs> and I wanted to say that just talking, just hearing Dave talk about uh, messing around with cameras is already soothing me. And I think today I read a blog by Hamish on 35MMC in which he basically talked about why he's going to keep on going with his photograph hobby in spite of all this grim news. Um, if nothing else, it's a distraction from all the uh, kind of uh, fret fretting that it's hard to avoid. I will second that. Um, about three days ago, two, three days ago, I woke up at about five in the morning with a lot of anxiety um because of our, our worldwide situation and i went in and started scanning and that calmed me down it did not solve one damn problem but it calmed me down it so did it solve one problem that problem it, you down. It, solved, <laughs> it solved that problem but it didn't it did not make the world a better place it just made it a little bit more livable so I think okay. I, I think a calm gram is uh, makes the world a bit better. Okay, so we introduced Dave, Dave the Walker on Instagram. Uh, Instagram. Uh, Dave the Walker 80. Oh, sorry, Dave the Walker 80. I, it's like I don't remember anybody's phone numbers. I, I look at all your <laughs> Instagram posts. It <laughs> uh, doesn't always register. Dave the Walker 80 on Instagram. Um, Dave is an electrical engineer and uh, camera maker extraordinaire and makes a lot of electronic cameras and camera parts which i love um so yeah dave um before we get into cameras can you tell us a little bit about uh your the things you are interested in building in your engineering background sure um well i, I studied uh, electronics at university i did a, a four-year course in the uk um and so uh well since an early age i've, I've just, you know, fiddled around with bits and pieces we always had um trays of components and loft and uh, we had a loft room at home with my parents um, and my dad had some gear, he had you know, soldering iron and, and oscilloscope and bits and bobs so I, I was always exposed to that sort of thing um, and I'd put little projects together and take things apart and um, after many years of taking things apart I gradually learned how to put them back together again <laughs> um, but it took a while. Um, um, yeah, so um, electronics things, um, I, on the whole, I tried to stick with um, uh, analog electronics. I thought that was more interesting during my course uh, than the digital stuff, and I, I did well clear of software at the time, um, if I could avoid it. 
Um, over time, I've, I've introduced Arduinos, which I think are excellent for an awful lot of things, um, and uh, a little bit of uh, programming as well. But um, I used to make things like um, just like an, an electronic uh, trigger for um, uh, digital cameras, um, different ways of uh, triggering the shutter at different times, so you could get sort of popping balloons and things. Um, I just built one of these. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I tried all sorts of things. I tried taping um, bits of tin foil to the balloon and then using a, a pin with a wire on it to pop the balloon. Um, and, and just that, using that the contact? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Oh. Uh, water. <laughs> I was using, um, the first thing we tried was uh, timing a delay between actuating first a solenoid valve and then a servo valve all the solenoid valve didn't have enough throughput to even make a drop because it was a pneumatic valve the uh servo valve was way too imprecise and so eventually we went to like a manual eyedropper breaking a laser and a laser sensor and then some timed delay based on the height it was <laughs> it it had room for improvement <laughs> but we got some funny <laughs> pictures yeah it's good fun um yeah, so um, I, uh, I I don't really know where my um, kind of tinkering started to intersect with with cameras. I guess um, it's probably 12, 12, 13 years ago. I I did a a city and guild course, which is sort of evening class at a local college um, in photography, and that was that was mostly, in fact, entirely film based. And they had a big darkroom, and that got me switched on to black and white stuff. And um, developing at home. Dave, had you been into photography before that, or you sort of came to photography from tinkering and engineering? Um, no, I, I, you know, as a child, I, I had those um, tiny little uh, fold-up uh, 110 cameras that you, you know, where the cartridge sticks out both ends. Um, <laughs> where you take those in the whole day. Um, almost universally awful, um, and the uh, disposable cameras, and then. Um, with my first paycheck, I, I did some summer work at my dad's company, and I, I got um, I got a paycheck. My first one, I went to the local camera shop, and there were still, still such things, um, and got the fanciest camera I could find, which was a Canon A1. Um, and I must have been about seventeen, um, mm -hmm. and I, I used that um, well for, for years and years until uh, it suffered a, an unfortunate incident. Um, <laughs> I, I had it on um, on a tripod with a, a big flash on top and uh, knocked the tripod and the whole thing just fell forward uh, and I, I it cracked the prison housing. I think it's still okay, but it, I, I don't trust it anymore. So I, um, I swapped it for uh, an F1 that uh, a colleague was, um, was selling off cheap um, and uh, I'm very happy with that now. Um, but uh, yeah, so when so when I did this uh, this evening class course and got into darkroom stuff, I I started collecting darkroom gear from people were just giving the stuff away at the time. It was uh, it's a great time to build the darkroom. Um, I've got um, you know nice and larger and all the all the trays and the tanks and everything all came for almost nothing. Um, and at the the same time, one of the guys I. I picked up some stuff from he had um uh, Mamiya RB67 so I got that for uh, you know, 50 pounds or something it was um it was very cheap um and started 
building a, <laughs> a bit of a camera collection, really. I, I, I've got all sorts of uh, cameras of various formats and sizes, and uh, um, I got into Super 8 Cine Film, and um, um, I built a Bulldog uh, 4x5 camera. Um, yeah, so all these things kind of gradually coalesce. And Dave, um, so jumping around here a little bit, um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the stuff you build for work um, before we get back to camera building? Uh, yes. Um, or is it a secret, maybe? <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not quite secret. It's, um, it's amusing because um, just, just recently it's been, it's actually been a camera. It's um so I'm, I'm R&D manager for a, a team of engineers, um, and they've been making um, it's a very sort of specialised industrial camera for nuclear uh, applications. So it can resist phenomenal amounts of uh, radiation and still send. It's a digital camera, but still send a, a digital camera signal. Uh, but that's sort of you know tens of thousands of pounds worth of camera, and it's all done in um, stainless steel, and it's um, uh, all um, radiation tolerance stuff. That's so another perspective. I imagine you have a very noisy files to contend with. Uh, they they can be yes um, um, yeah certainly if the while the radiation is live the, uh, the, the, there's there's quite a lot quite a lot of noise to contend with. Um, but just component damage and I mean um, over over time your transistors um, you have to do the whole thing basically um, discrete analog uh, components. You can't use modern integrated circuits, you can't use processors, you can't use FPGA. Um, For repair purposes. Well, it just it just doesn't work. It um, it just falls over really quickly in, in radiation. So you can use TTL, um, but that's, uh, that's getting really old now. Um, um, but yeah, so the, you know, they're getting a bit technical. The, the gain of a transistor can um, reduce by a factor of like, 10 or 20 wow. um, over, over the radiation. So you have to you have to get quite clever with the electronic design to make sure it's not dependent on those things. Sounds sounds actually very interesting. Yes, yeah, it's fascinating. I, I'm I'm not I'm not on the on the coal face as it were um, during the the circuit design, but I I reviewed the circuits and the. The, the software and the mechanics and um, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, man, I feel like we should just talk about that uh, <laughs> until you get fired. Um. <laughs> hey, 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 we can just, uh, we'll sign a non-disclosure agreement. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> if this is my verbal signature, I won't let anyone know. It's just between us. <laughs> Grant, this, is, this is a public show. Literally dozens of people listen. Literally dozens. They all have to sign too. In order to listen, <laughs> you have to sign. <laughs> right. Okay. So, sorry. Go ahead, Nick. That's okay. I was going to say, <clears throat> much as I want to hear all about that, we are. Um, it would be good to. I'm actually even more interested in Dave's work on shutters because it's sort of our missing link. Um, any kind of shutter is something I'm very interested in experimenting with. Uh, even if it's got limitations, it would be a lot better than my uh, my derby hat that I use uh, at present. 
Well, okay, Nick, we have that as our next segment is just to talk about shutters. Um, can I can I ask a question before we get to talking about shutters? Absolutely. Hey, yeah. Dave, what is the first camera you built? Um, it, it was probably the, the, the Bulldog, the 4x5 um, Bulldog camera, which is made of, I think, laser-cut MDF mostly. Um, uh, I, I couldn't afford a, a proper large format camera, so I bought a kit, um, put it together, painted it, pillarbox red, and um, um, yeah, it, it sort of it sort of works. It's not the best uh, um, best constructed camera in the world, but that was that was the first camera I built, start to finish. So, is it for photographing bulldogs? Does it have a knee level <laughs> finder, or or what makes it a bulldog camera? Uh, that's just the uh, the name of the the company that sold the kit. Aha. They were like very short, stocky, and like uh, sort of rugged-looking or beefy-looking kits. I've seen them. I haven't seen them in person, though. Yeah. Didn't they drool a lot, though, and have trouble breathing? <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> uh, did you do the four by five or the eight by ten? Four by five. I wasn't brave enough for, or, or rich enough for the eight by ten at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've just heard about these recently. I heard about them. I forget where it was that I heard about them. Um, I, I was unaware of them uh, and just recently have gone looking and apparently they are they're gone. They're out of business. I don't yeah, they've see been anybody out of business selling. since we've been in business or well before. Yeah. But they're yeah. they're pretty well documented on the Internet. They're interesting cameras. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, Dave, where'd you go from there? What was what was the next photographic uh thing you built um well various things really um i mean more recently i um i, I spend a lot of time listening to the, the sunny 16 podcast and they kind of uh, rekindled my imagination for building photographic things um so i, I did some messing around with <laughs> um you probably you may have seen on my, on my Instagram, it's a big sort of cardboard construction for a, a slit camera. I love it. Um, it was, I've watched that in real time for uh, quite a while. <laughs> it's it's currently sat quarantined in my office at work. I, I can't get to it. But um, um, yeah, it's, that, that was interesting. It was a case of trying to solve the problems with, with the things I had lying around. So it, there's um, uh, it's a, a small plastic flat Fresnel lens uh, and some mirrors and um, a servo motor and an Arduino and uh, a curved um, paper holder at the back and the whole thing's supposed to go in a big shoebox. Um, uh, I ran into some trouble with the, the first servo I had. It didn't have quite enough grunt to, to turn it. I didn't have. Um, I just had the servo on the on the axis, the rotational axis, and there's quite a lot of um, friction um, to get it moving. Mm-hmm. Um, so I upgraded the servo, and it's a lot better. But um, uh, it works fine at moderate to high speeds, but at very slow speeds, it kind of sticks um, and then jumps quite a long way at, at once. So it needs a bit of tinkering and finessing um, to make that work properly. But um, it was a fun um, uh, exercise to to get my head around and, and try and uh, think how I might do it. The, the original idea was to try and get a, a photograph that was daytime and nighttime in the same shot. Um, I 
I think it's almost it, it, it's too bright for that really. If I'd used a pinhole, I, I probably could have got away with it, but the the lens in there is, is too bright really. Um, I'd have to use um, ND filters or something to slow it down, or I just um, put gaps in between. It's a slick camera, so you could do a little bit, then wait ten minutes and do a little bit more, and wait ten minutes and do a little bit more. Um, so I'm still interested to, to see how that goes, but it, it got slightly shelved while I was waiting for the new servo, and then the um, uh, the, the um, LCD shutter project took over my attention for a while, <laughs> um, and I had a um, a self-imposed deadline for that, so I, I, I put my work into there for a while. So I remember the Sunny 16 episode where I happened to be on and we came up with the idea of uh, making day-night cameras at home. Uh, mm. And I think this is another bulldog camera because you're still working on this utterly harebrained idea that we sort of threw off <laughs> and most of us were chicken to actually tackle. So I'm, I think you're uh, I think you're really brave and resourceful. Uh, yeah, brave or stupid or... It's the same same thing. (laughs) Um, Oh yeah, it's it's really it's a lot of fun actually, and it would be it would be great to see you take it a little farther along. So I'm looking forward to that. So, what other projects like that are you uh, have you uh, worked through? Uh, we do have one that we're reserving for a little bit later, but other than that one, are you working on anything else? Yeah, there's a couple of things going on. Um, uh, I I was interested, I, I can't remember how I got into it, but um, I got hold of a reversing camera for a, a car that works in extraordinarily low light and, has, and extends out into the infrared um, uh, visibility um, uh-huh. and it's got a very very close just a couple of sentences um, we, we lost I, a phraser, phrase or two there at least I did did you guys hear yeah he's, it, no I lost it too you said okay. it was very very close go back to the so, reverse in camera yeah. <laughs> so um, yes it, it's got a very very close focusing distance. The, the near focus is, is just a, a couple of centimeters away from the lens and it's a wide angle. Mm. Um, um, and uh, so I, I I went looking and I got hold of um, um, it's like an, um, it's a PCB with a load of infrared LEDs on it but they're quite far infrared so they the spectrum from the LEDs shouldn't um, interact with any sort of photographic materials that it's too far into the red for that, including um, sort of uh, infrared film. Actually, it, it goes. So I forget the the um, the wavelength, but um, I could look it up. Um, so I got one of those illuminators, and I got this um, reversing camera, and I stuck them in a box in a dark bag uh, just to see if I could make like a sort of um, uh, effectively like a night vision box, so I could I could do um, film things in the dark. Um, and see what I was doing on a um, on a um, on a monitor externally, and it, it worked fine, um, surprisingly well actually. Uh, the, the the issue I had with my reversing camera is that the uh, the pictures inverted left to right um, to look like a mirror, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. which I, I hadn't taken into account at the time I bought it. Um, 
Uh, but you could use literally a mirror in front of the lens and that would that would correct that. Or you could just get one that doesn't do that. Um, but all the bits were incredibly cheap from China when you could get things from China. Um, and um, yeah, I cobbled it together in, a, in an afternoon and it, it, it worked brilliantly. So I'm quite interested to turn that into like a proper uh, glove box effectively. So um, I can um, cut film down or restore things or, or whatever and see what I'm doing. At your suggestion, I had a long conversation with Joe Van Cleve about using one of these inside of a Afghan box camera. And we both decided that one, this was extremely clever. And two, like, um, it's like the 80s cameras that everybody is sort of like the redheaded stepchild that uh, nobody likes because they're not quite, you know, sort of 90s electronic perfection and they're not quite <laughs> 60s or 70s mechanical uh, cleverness. They're just like this hodgepodge of like an autofocus camera with a manual film line and and his thought was like if i have an afghan box camera can i really have a digital camera to look inside and my thing was like <laughs> yeah you can <laughs> yeah, i think that's great it led to like a, a long the, philosophical thing yeah that's the proper use of a digital camera i mean i that's just uh, yeah anyway <laughs> it's not as if using an Afghan box camera in the middle of a technologically uh, advanced circumstances is it's already odd. I mean, it, it, there's no there's <laughs> yeah. no there's no making it any more odd. <laughs> it would certainly make it easier, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I think it's a great idea. Also, you know, if you can make uh, videos of the process in the dark, that's something too. that one of the reasons why we wanted to bring you on uh, to the episode, uh, Dave, is your work with shutters uh, for cameras and the specific LED light gate shutters that you've been using. Um, can you tell us, you know, first of all, what made you go to these LED shutters? What was the or LCD shutters. If I said LED, LCD shutters. Um, what, what, yeah, LED shutters, I think, would be counterproductive. But um, what is it that sent you along this path? Um, well, I, I again, I, I forget what sparked it, but I, I became aware that you could get hold of um, automatic, automatic darkening welding masks. And I thought, I wonder how they work. <laughs> um, uh, but the, the idea is you, uh, there, there's a, a liquid crystal screen, just one big segment effectively, in front of your eyes. Um, and there's a little circuit in there uh, that detects the light from your welding arc um, and darkens the liquid crystal. So I thought, well, that's got to be quite quick um, to be useful. Um, I wonder how cheap I can get hold of one of those. I think we, we talked about it on our podcast a little bit a long time ago. Um, I don't know whether you heard that or not. Um, but, no, I, uh, I, I don't speculated. think I did. <laughs> yeah, we, we speculated along um, 
And I went a little bit down the path and abandoned it because I have no way of controlling them. But um, yeah, um, it, so so you uh, something triggered it and and you started thinking through this system. That's better. Yeah. So I, I got hold of the cheapest welding goggles I could find. Um, and it was like a few pounds, literally uh, three or four pounds um, uh, delivered. Um, and these things arise and they're, they're like a pair of sunglasses, really. Um, but they're, they're so incredibly poorly made that they just fall apart in your hands, which is perfect. Um, <laughs> when you work <laughs> um, I, I definitely wouldn't trust my eyes for them if I was doing welding, but for, for my purposes, they were, they were spot on. Um, so, so I, I have a comment, I have a comment to throw in right there. I am a welder yeah. and I, I use uh, these shields and actually the, the, the shutter part that darkens is not the part that protects your eyes. There, there is a lens, which is what's actually stopping the harmful radiation. Uh, so you, you will see spots in front of your eyes if it malfunctions, but no damage will happen. Oh, that, that's a relief. I did, I did see another, there's like a green shielding uh, part in there as well, which mm-hmm. I, I discarded. <laughs> um, i'm not doing welding it doesn't matter (laughs) um so uh so i I took this thing apart and i i I had it on my desk at work at one month time and i i was i was looking at there's a little circuit board in there there's a a little battery um non-rechargeable battery in there and um a solar panel actually strangely for the trigger um so I, i managed to you know, hold it up to my desk lamp and, and see it go on and off. And I thought, well, that's, that's quite neat. Um, and I was thinking maybe I'll have to re- reverse engineer the circuit board and work out the control system. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe not. I'll, I'll, I'll measure the voltage across the, the LCD when it's triggering on and off. Um, and when it's off, there's zero volts. And when it's, do- when it's dark, there's five volts. Five volts is very easy to play with. Uh, all um, Arduinos um, run on 5 volts, um, most of them. So um, the next thing I did was I got my Arduino board that I had in my drawer um, and I, I just pulled the LCD panel off the circuit board it had and discarded the circuit board. I've got a bag full of them. Um, and then just poked wires into the 5 volt connector on the on the Arduino and I could switch it on and off um, really easily. Um, and if I held it up to my desk lamp, it made it mostly dark so um i used the standard um it's called blink the the, the the first thing you ever do on an arduino there's a hello world of electronics um which just switches an led on on and off once a second and i just plugged this lcd into there um and you could see it going dark and light and dark and light you have to get the angle more or less exactly perpendicular to get the, the darkest effect but um, there was, uh, it was, it was quite dark. Um, it didn't, it didn't stop all of the light, but it just stopped most of it. And I thought, at that stage, I thought that it's worth an experiment with a slow film, maybe. Um, um, and I, I was thinking maybe I'll have to build some sort of camera. And I, I put it to one side. Um, and then I, I was listening to again. It was another Sunny Sixteen podcast, I think, and um, there was a, a discussion about how um, the problem with um, cameras is that um, uh, the new ones that are being built are mostly large format ones because 
the lenses come in shutters um, and nobody's really solved the problem of, of shutters for smaller formats for new cameras. Um, yeah, I, I think that they were talking about the um, the reflex and the fact that reflex had kind of it. stalled out. That's it. So, so it got me thinking. I, I, I also, at that stage, I, I also had, um, it was a box brownie I'd got as part of um, a mixed bag of auction things, um, like a physical auction, not not eBay. Um, and I had, I had a box of it, and there was this um, Kodak popular brownie in there, 620 brownie. Um, and it was already in bits on my desk because I've been cleaning up the lens and servicing the shutter and um, trying to tidy it up a bit and make it serviceable. Um, and I made myself a note on my on my phone uh, the next day to go and see if, if the one would fit inside the other, if I could get the LCD to fit inside the popular brownie. So I, I the next day I offered the two up together and it was almost as if they'd been manufactured for that exact purpose. So it, it was exactly the right size to cover the the, the circle in the middle um, where the lens uh, showed through and the, exactly the right length for the, the piece of wood that it, the shutter's mounted on. And these things are made like 80, 90 years apart and they just happen right. to, to fit nicely. <clears throat> so I thought, oh great, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. So I, I, um, I carved a, uh, well, yeah, kind of carved and gouged and filed a, a, a slot in the, in the wood. Um, old cameras are made of wood, but it makes it very easy to chop bits off. Um, and I stuck this uh, LCD in there. Um, and I, I, was, I got it to the stage where um, I thought it would probably work for some experiments. Um, but I, I, at the back of my mind, I was thinking it's not, it's not quite dark enough. Um, on a bright day, you're going to get light shining through there. <clears throat> so I thought, well, if I just get another one and stick it on top, <coughs> um, then it will be twice as dark. It'll cut out um, uh, a lot more light. So I, I got hold of another couple. Um, and then when I offered one LCD up to the other one, I discovered that if they're in the same orientation, um, um, they they go black. <laughs> you, you can't see through uh, in its resting state. I and mean, it doesn't matter which way around you turn the, the LCD, um, if you turn it 180 degrees or if you flip it back to front, it's still black. Uh, so you can see through it, you have to turn one of them 90 degrees to the other one. And I still, I still don't have a a theoretical understanding of exactly why that is. It's, it's, it's to do with polarizers and cross-polarization, um, but I can't quite visualize it yet. Hold on a sec. Yeah, I, I think that isn't that kind of the concept of one of those variable neutral density filters where, you know, essentially you have two polarizers that are, um, that you're rotating one on the other. Isn't that essentially the concept? Yes, it's the same. It's the yeah. same idea. And I, I think the angle, uh, the issue of needing it to be perfectly perpendicular, has to do with uh, when light is behaving like a particle, and you know, you're you're basically shooting it through a slot, uh, over, over, you know, many times over. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, so I was at this stage. I had one 
LCD quite nicely fitting inside the brownie. And then I, I tried to put the other one in at 90 degrees and realised it was way too wide. <laughs> it, it wouldn't fit in the box. Oh, no. So I, I thought, well, I could mount it on the front in front of the lens with a stopgap. And I, I did that with some elastic bands. But it, it wasn't a very nice solution. Um, I thought it was great. Through, <laughs> <laughs> and then um, I, I, I went back to source really I, I thought well um, maybe there's a smaller one um, so I, I was scouring eBay and I, I managed to find a pair of um, welding goggles where each individual eye had its own LCD panel and they were, they were more or less square um, um, so I, I got a couple of pairs of those and took those apart and they fell apart just as easily as the other one and <laughs> um, you don't need any tools to take these things apart. Um, uh, and, and so I, I sort of re-engineered the, the, the camera to fit two of those in. Um, uh, and then um, I needed some sort of control system. So I, I went across to the Arduino. And I had um, uh, like a little um, two-line display um, I had kicking around in my parts bin. Um, and I bought some um, rotary encoders, that, uh, like, um, like the knobs you get on car stereos, where they, they rotate infinitely either direction, and you can push them to click. Um, and I, I basically built a little menu system so you could adjust the shutter speed um, uh, on the Arduino on the screen, and then it would just turn, uh, resting state would be dark, and then you, it would just turn off for the set period of time and turn back on again. Um, um, and it, then it was it was more a mechanical job from then on trying to, to make the two together. Uh, I fitted a little socket in the side of the, the brownie so I could plug and unplug the, the control box. Um, I mean, the whole thing looks like a bomb. <laughs> when, when you take it out, it's a, it's a, it's a prop from a movie. It's a, you feel fairly self-conscious leaving it around in, in cities. But, um, yeah, you need you need to make a, uh, a, a innocuous looking exoskeleton for that thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I quite like it though. <laughs> it it um, looks kind of I, I would refer to that as electropunk as opposed to steampunk. I love punk, it. You know, so so I I may have missed something, but I'm also curious because this thing doesn't go 100% dark. Um, what are you using as a mechanical shutter to uh, keep the light out you know before and after you fire the shutter lens cap lens cap no um i use the original shutter in the in the brownie there you go Um, so it's it's got a time mode so you can just you can literally just flip it open and and close again um so um i mean with the with the two lcds it's almost totally dark but of course if you unplug it 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 goes clear um so I, I use the mechanical shutter, which is still intact on the brownie. So you, so, you, um, you leave that closed. So if I'm sorry, if you have a if you had a camera which had flash sync, and some of those very primitive early cameras do have flash sync, is there a yeah. way you could time it so that the flash sync actuated your LCD shutter while the uh, mechanical shutter is open? Um, you probably could. Um, what's the advantage? Well, it just would speed up. It would speed up the action. So if you're trying to shoot something, oh, you know, see. with better timing, you would have one less thing to think about. Yeah, you could. You could definitely do that. 
Right, so you would just push the shutter button on T, and as soon as it opened, it would close the contact. You'd read yeah. the interrupt, fire the LCD, and then maybe make a beep <laughs> so you can let go. Well, but I'm suggesting yeah. is that you use the the flash sync. So there are very simple cameras yeah. that have a flash sync that syncs with a, like a one sixtieth of a second shutter or something like that. Then you wouldn't even need T. You could just fire it. That's, that's okay if you if your shutter speed is less than a sixtieth. Well, uh, now, and I'm going to back up a little bit. The whole point here is to create a shutter. Not use a shutter to trigger a shutter. Yes, but but those very very but those very primitive old shutters are extremely yeah. easy to build, and yeah. I'm just noting okay. that they had flash sync even back in those days. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, have you taken this thing out and uh, and tested it? Have you? Um, uh, you know he has. I know. She's trying to keep. Come on, tell us. Tell us about um, uh, about taking it out. So um, I, my my self-imposed um, deadline was for the Oxford photo walk when people were still allowed to go out and walk in the city, um, uh, organised by Graham of Sunny uh, Sixteen. So um, Oxford is is the nearest town, well nearest city from here anyway. Um, so I, I I wanted to make it long for that, and I wanted to make sure I have my my camera to test. Um, it all went together in a little bit of a hurry because I, I broke a couple of LCDs. They're quite fragile, actually, where the where the wires join the glass. Um, it's quite easy to damage them. Um, and I, I damaged a couple trying to put the box back together in a way that was light type. Um, so it was the last minute fix. Um, and then I had to re. <laughs> I obviously, if I'd started from the beginning, I probably wouldn't have chosen that camera. It's just what I had. Um, I had to re-spool a, a 120 onto a 620 spool and get that fitted. I've never done that before. Um, so yes, I, I took it out. I took it to the, the photo walk and I took um, six or seven photos. Uh, it, was a, it was a whole roll, but I, I think I I messed up the first one and one of them was a, a massive overexposure when I, I knocked the shutter in the bag without the, the battery attached. Um, but all the ones I took intentionally came out um, better than I hoped, actually. Um, they look good. The, yeah, yeah I, was, I, I was I was really surprised and pleased um, that something I'd knocked I'd together <laughs> on my desk at lunchtime had, um, had worked so well. There's, there's quite a lot of um, uh, it's, it's more than a vignetting, it's almost portholing. Um, and I, I haven't quite decided whether that's a, a function of the two polarized sheets um, stopping ang- um, Lights and wide angles can get them through, or if it's to do with the lens on the on the brownie, I, I haven't disentangled the two yet. Um, if you go to Instagram and you search out, oh, well, or you can click the link that's in our notes, or you can search out Dave the Walker eighty, all one word, all jammed together. Um, you can see these photos. And there's there's one in particular of a building that has a dome. It says it looks like a circular building with a dome on top, and you it's can see camera. this vignette. Oh, say that again. It's the Radcliffe camera in Oxford. It's, it's called a camera. It's just a room. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, you can see the 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 very heavy vignetting 
that he's talking about. What's what's the focal length on your brownie? Do you know? I don't know. It's a short answer. <laughs> All right. Well, if you figure it out, uh, I might be able to come up with a, a a lens that doesn't have vignetting that would work on it. Um, in in my collection of strange old cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, as I say, I'm, I'm not sure if it's the lens causing the vignette or the um, or the shutter at the moment. It right. might be the so I'm suggesting that if I if I send you a lens that doesn't have a problem, you'd be able to maybe uh, or, determine that. Or what would be much quicker is if you just shot it using without the shutter, without the shutter in place, uh, without the electronic shutter in place, using the the um, the, the standard shutter that's uh, mm. attached to it. Um, but um, I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of interested in um, in this as a um, you know uh, uh, as a shutter for uh, enlarging lenses and um, mm-hmm. you know projector lenses and um, you know big copy camera lenses all those um, uh, what is how much space are you using um what is it requiring um how thick is inside it? the camera like not how thick it is it i'm thinking more of left to right top to bottom uh when when you know looking along the light path um the i mean you can get lcd panels in almost any size okay you can this this these are slightly unique in that they're a single segment. They're not they're not pixelated LCDs. They're just one. I see pixel. one pixel. Um, so uh, the ones I've got, I, from memory, um, um, I, I can't remember the exact measurements. I think they're they're about three centimeters long. I think, and they're nearly square. Okay. The ones I've got. Yeah, that um, sounds get, like a, a good size for welding. So they're almost medium, like a halfway to medium format. I, yeah, you can get them up to, I've, I've looked, you can get bigger ones up to about 90 millimeters square, about nine, nine centimeters square. Okay. Uh, I, I was just, as I asked that, I was, I was thinking through, yeah, I, it depends on what the size of the lens is um, that you're putting it close to. So the back lens of, uh, you know the back glass of whatever the lens is, right. whatever that diameter is, you have to overshoot it by twenty or thirty percent. I mean, um, or or Graham, you could uh, often the internal aperture is choked down, right? So if you have like some sort of symmetrical lens, you only have to get bigger than the largest aperture. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you okay. cut the lens in half and put it in the center, I think you know for me yeah. the the big issue that, is that less, I think like, is a little bit more difficult. But um, I was thinking behind or in front of the lens, that's the that would be the placement. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I think of it as like a, a design solution rather than like a hacking solution, mm-hmm. uh, in which case putting something in the center is less crazy. The and issue for me is like, one, they never get totally light and two, they never get totally dark. I think it's like <laughs> a, it's super cool. Um but also means that I've got to build a mechanical shutter too. 
<laughs> yes, but but a very simple mechanical shutter uh, with an analog <laughs> yeah. flash sync is isn't that hard to do, and that's why I'm interested. And the reason I'd like to go to the trouble is not so much for medium format because I've got an old you know speed graphic I can use for that I'm working on, but it's for 35 millimeter and it's to use uh, SLR lenses which you can't cut in half and easily insert uh, a, mm. a shutter in the middle of. Wait, you don't have a and, bandsaw. I, <laughs> That's okay. I could cut them well, in half. Well, he has a, he has a hammer. Be, I'm, not, I'm not interested in cutting it in half. The point is I'd like to stick it uh, right behind the lens in a, a very short flange focal distance camera to shoot 35 millimeter film. That's what interests me. And that's sort of the problem I don't have a workaround for at the moment. Uh, and this would solve it. And there are small... Uh, very simple shutters that would take care of, you know, the beginning and end uh, mm -hmm. part of this sequence. Uh, so how thin it is front to back is what's interesting. And, and and I'm picturing the thing like I have in my welding helmet. It's just it's just a few millimeters thick. So you could you could insert it into that small space in even a rangefinder camera style camera, I would imagine. Sure. Each panel is probably a couple of millimeters each. So, um, yeah, three or four will be done. If I now that was something that I was just thinking is because you have two that are 90 degrees to each other, I was thinking, of course, if you know, if one of them blocks out 95% of the light, the second one blocks out 95% of the light, you know, and that takes you down to a very, very small percentage. Um, yeah, when, when shut, and I'm going to use shut in air quotes, I was thinking if you put in another one and then I was, uh, and then immediately, oh, wait, you can't because if you stack another one, it is uh, parallel to, as opposed to perpendicular to uh, one of those two starters. No, and man, that would shut it all we, off. Yeah. We could we could start doing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. I see. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You couldn't. You, I, I you, suppose you could have two double two. sets. Couldn't you have two double sets and then no, rotate, and rotate one double set to forty five degrees? Would that I, work, or would it just get all funky? <laughs> <laughs> I think that personally, I think a simple mechanical shutter, even a T type where you just push it with your finger and, you know, and then fire the shutter. In fact, it wouldn't yeah. be that hard to make a okay, trigger, but, a but trigger that, that opened the T on the way to hitting the electronic. And you could, you could even put that T on the, um, uh, on the filter ring. of oh, All right. All right. I'm going to play some devil's advocate here. Okay. I think what, what okay. Dave has done is very clever and like a great research project, but if you have a simple mechanical shutter and you have an Arduino, why don't you just time the shutter with some sort of solenoid? All right, right make like, us a solenoid. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't want... <laughs> Excuse me, hold on. <laughs> Coronavirus... Uh, all right, so I was I was looking at your um, at all your valves that you're making for uh, you know keep people breathing and thinking that we should consider going back to pneumatic shutters, which is where a lot of the early large format shutters began, um, uh -huh. because that could be 
a really interesting way to give yourself the basic shutter. What's what I find exciting about adding in this LCD element is that you have a very compact way to control uh, higher shutter speeds. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I still think it's and a really interesting it, component. Yeah, it is really dark. Um, I I forget. I did do some tests. I've I, uh, I've forgotten the number off the top of my head, but it's on one of the um, Instagram posts. I, I did some some and worked out roughly how many stops per per LCD. Um, but it's lots. It's um, you know it, it it definitely it's dark enough if you're if you don't need the mechanical shutter open too long. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, and I was thinking, I'm thinking that a a that that you could do an analog solution where your T shutter is opened um, by the lever as you're depressing it towards the one that actuates the LCD, so that that could be a very simple way to tackle that. Mm -hmm. I was just looking to see if I could get those numbers, but uh, but I'm not coming up on them. But um, <laughs> I, I the. I, I think that there are wonderful possibility um, possibilities here, um, especially for, um, you know, uh, we, we were just talking about um, uh, the day and tonight camera that, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I think that there's there's something here for you know, timed exposures, you know, like um, uh, you, you you take, um, you know, a one one thousandth of a second every um, every minute for a certain amount of time, you know, that type of thing. I think that because it has that electronic control, I think that there are some flexibilities that are in this kind of system that are not generally available in mechanical systems that uh, that I think could be really exciting and it's just about programming them in versus um you know about you know building a timer or uh and the other thing about this that i think find absolutely exciting is that it's you know solid state right so there are no moving parts there is no shutter vibration um this could really um this I, I think that the the creative um, possibilities for the images that you could take with this type of system are are fabulous. And I'm just um, you know I, I think about uh, there are lots of people who take uh, you know um, take out their holgas and just uh, you know click 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 um, and get these multiple exposure results. Mm -hmm. Um, I, but then, you know, you're moving the camera the whole time and I'm just, you know, if you had, oh, we'll, we'll go back to the old world, uh, the world that has, has, um, uh, been suspended, but you have a crowd of people walking <laughs> by and you have this camera that is, is taking pictures of people at different states and it is not motion blur, but it is ghosting. You know, very, you know, you because you can have multiple exposures, but very short exposure times so that you can freeze action, but you're freezing multiple actions all at once. I mean, just think of what Maybridge would have um, uh, would have 
done for this type of <laughs> yeah no, I'm, I'm, imag- I'm imagining a kind of heartbeat pulse rate that yeah. would be interesting yeah yeah uh i i'm i'm uh, you know just yeah the the uh the artistic possibilities of this type of system are are wild um there's one, there's one other thing it, it can do as well for, for longer exposures it turns out you can um if you don't drive the LCDs hard on and off, and you you, um, you drive them the pulse width modulated signal. So um, you you know they're on for a short while, then off for a short while, then on and off very very quickly. Uh-huh. You you can you can use them as a variable MD filter. So you can you can program the um, the density of the of the glass. Oh. Um, so um, it won't work for very short exposures because you need to be able to switch it on and off. But but for longer exposures, you can you can do that. Oh man. Yeah. Okay. Now here is the first practical application. Okay. Is, so is so, an electronically oh. controlled variable ND filter for cinematography. That's a mm-hmm. that's a you know many hundred thousand dollar product for plus, sure. Plus, plus all you, if you attached it to a, a, a light sensor, it could do it dynamically on the fly. Right. I mean, like some cameras have this, right? But like often um, you will see in scenes where like in a movie where you go from indoors to outdoors, um, they will pop in a variable ND filter and then have somebody just controlling that so that they don't have to change the aperture or shutter speed. So the film looks the same, but, um, you know, you have even exposure and those things go on, you know, hundred thousand dollar cameras. I think, I think Dave, you got a product. Yeah, <laughs> I think in no time at all, the cool kids are going to be gluing discarded circuit boards to the outside of their cameras. <laughs> oh, I'm going to do, do it. It won't be functional, but it'll look cool. Yep. Um, <laughs> I just have to break apart some piece, piece of electronics. I'm sure I have like a a um, uh, uh, a remote control or something like that that I can. Yeah. OK, never mind. Sure. So uh, just the same way that you have playing cards on the spokes of your bicycle. I I, I love the way that this is a solution that was, um, you know, uh, just, uh, you know, that solved one problem, but opens up so many other possibilities um, that uh, that, yeah, that, that this really could um you know, it, it could really expand. Now, the problem is that there are people like me who know the name Arduino and could probably recognize that it's a circuit board device type of thing. Um, uh, but, but yeah. OK, so apparently I just said something really stupid. Um, so T- the time it, teamwork is called for. Yeah. So um, Bar- barter uh, what you do know for what you don't. Right, exactly. So um, I'm just wondering what it would take to uh, kickstart one of these things um, where there was some flexibility. Um, but anyway, I think, I think um, I'm sure, Graham, that there are YouTube videos of the monkey see, monkey do type, which would allow yeah. you to put together an Arduino without actually knowing what you're doing. Yeah. Or you can watch uh 
Paul McWhorter's wonderful series teaching high school kids how to use Arduinos, and in about five hours, you can do anything. Knowing what <laughs> Well, lucky now, I have five hours. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I have five hours for anything. So... Uh, so yeah, you, you, you've got a point there. I think that, uh, I, I think that the, this, the future is bright for this technology. the uh, sequestering and um, uh, you know that, that people are doing the world world around right now is that um, there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of people out there who are doing a lot of Netflix and chill and uh, spending time on the couch which is no problem you know, whatever gets you through seriously uh, Graham gets- do you know what Netflix and chill is yeah, Netflix and chill is getting on the couch and having sex. Uh, okay. But yeah, <laughs> okay. I, I was doing a little bit more of just Netflix, Netflix and uh, veg. How about that? Netflix yeah. and veg. Put that down. I'm making noise. Um, uh, so you know, in this time of, uh, and as long as you know you're within your with your sequestering partner, um, Netflix and chill is okay. Um, but. Uh, I wanted to, you know, if anybody's looking for a project and um, uh, or is welcome for some projects that are out there, uh, I'm going to do uh, another challenge. And that's the COVID camera challenge. Um, And the challenge is this. um, And I'm going to put uh, this is going to in some areas of the country, some areas of the country, some other areas of the world. this is going to extend uh, for uh, well past uh, the end of May, but I'm going to have this particular challenge end on the end of May and worldwide. It may extend. I, you know, I've heard 18 months. So um, and this is the, this is the challenge. Build a camera at home with parts that are on hand. It's uh, it can be as low tech or high tech as you want it to be. Um, and, you know, build a camera. Uh, it can be a pinhole camera. It can be a lensed camera. Um, I, I, you know, there's for this project, um, I'm not going to say or for this challenge, um, if you are able to take pictures with it and, and develop it yourself in your house. Great. If you can't, no problem. It's just about building the camera. It's just about putting something into that camera. Um so I um, and, you know, uh, it, it's whatever state, however you want to build it, whatever you want to build it out of. Um, this is all open uh, at the end. I'm going to put together a PDF zine. I will uh, by the next episode. I'm going to have an email address um, for you guys to send it through. Uh, I'm not going to have an upload form because our upload form allowed somebody to send us, you know, upload some malware 
and I had to go through a whole process of bringing the website back. So we're not going to do it that way. I'm going to have an email, you know, I'm going to, I'll just make up a Gmail address. Um, so um, build your camera, uh, take a picture of it, whatever you want. I'm going to tell you guys what I want to do for mine. Uh, I told you I've been working um, uh, lately uh, taking pictures with this four by five um, pinhole camera that I made. Um, well, I'm going to modify my four by, well, I'm not going to modify this one. I'm going to modify the design and build a new one. And the new one is going to be an, uh, a four by 10. So essentially what I'm going to do is I'm going to use two four by five film holders and I'm going to stick them butt to butt. Um, and there will be a little bit of gap in the image. Because I have to, you know, I have to light seal that area and they're, you know, and four by five film holders, uh, you know, leave about three quarters of an inch at the bottom of that uh, film holder um, where there is no image. So it's going to, you know, it's going to be a continuous image, um, but it is going to be... um, you know, it's going to have a gap in between. So, and it's going to be a pinhole because I don't have a lens to cover this. And it's all about stuff that we have on hand. And I have pinholes uh, on hand and I can, oh, I'm on the left. My pinhole drills at work. Well, well you'll, have, you'll have to use the pin there. You've got a yeah. pin or needle somewhere. Right, right. Exactly. I love the pinhole drills because then I know what the size is. So, um, so that's the idea. Um, uh, I welcome any type of camera. It can be digital. It can be, um, film. It can shoot onto paper. Um, you know, that was the other idea. I was going to build one that would shoot onto paper, uh, but I kind of wanted to be able to make it more than a one shot. Um, so oh, the therefore the, so the one you're uh, making, it, one you're making will still take paper. So uh, yeah, it'll just, still yeah. take paper. But I was thinking one continuous four by ten, uh, you know, piece of paper. Um, so, but anyway, so so that's the idea. Um, uh, so build what you want to build. Um, don't build what you want to build if if that's not going to be a good distraction for you, or if you've got other projects that you're doing fine. I just thought that we could, we could do something with this, um, with this situation um, that was similar across uh, many folks. So I think it's a great idea. And I wanted to throw out a suggestion since not uh everyone, not everyone will, either be able to develop or perhaps be inclined to send things out to be developed uh for instance paper you know that sort of thing right. in that case uh i've noticed some people doing really interesting things with homemade ground glass backs on cameras and then oh. they and then they capture that digitally um even a phone will do effectively a camera obscura kind of um... exactly and let's say you're sick of your wide angle phone shots and the way they look you could make uh, a much longer lens and put a ground glass on the back a homemade ground glass 
and then shoot that oh, with yeah. your phone. So there's there's a very simple way to make a digital camera out of a homemade camera. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What a great idea. I have some uh, ground glass. Uh, well, it's not ground glass. It's frosted plexi, and uh, I have some pretty big sheets of that. Maybe I'll just make a um, uh, make a pinhole viewer. Yeah, camera obscura. Yeah. And the same thing can shoot either film, paper, or be used digitally right. with, with a shroud and a way to stick a digital recording device behind it. Right. Okay. I, hey, thank you. Thank you, Nick. That's a great idea. Hey, Dave, do you have any camera building plans for uh, for quarantine, or, or is that all nuclear camera building plans? <laughs> Um, what better apocalypse I, camera? <laughs> Quite. I uh, I don't have any particular plans, but I did promise uh, my seven-year-old son that we could build a camera, uh, probably a pinhole, um, while he's off school and uh, we'll stuck at home. Perfect. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Uh, Ethan, are you gonna? Um, uh, do you have any uh, brainstorms on this uh, concept? Um. You know, so for a long time, I've been hoping that we could do an easier project than the self-developing camera, something like a, you know, weekend garbage camera project. Um, But I'm still mired in uh, large format lenses, wanting to get this damn laser cutter working, but it's quarantined now, I can't get to it, Um, and building 20 by 24 Polaroid alternatives. So I might do some drafting on that. Um, Right now, Mm -hmm. I kind of... I have one order to print and then about five or six orders that I have to ship out either today or tomorrow. They've been sitting on my desk too long. And then I think I'm just going to build ventilator parts for a week. Uh, and okay. Then, and then maybe I'll build some cameras. The thing is, like, I had I have no place to shoot stuck in my house. Like, you know, Laura doesn't want me to take a picture of her. I don't want to take a self-portrait. I've taken a right. thousand pictures of sandia peak from my backyard and my jeep and that's not interesting anymore good for calibrating infinity but um yeah man how how can i get excited about taking okay all right so the homemade model is the answer yes yes you should make them you should make something you can 3d print it or you know throw together plaster or something like that make something to take a picture of Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I so also I, have some. Okay, have I, got something. A, I got an idea. Okay, go ahead. I've been working on some sort of uh, pump, right? I built all the valves for it, but I'm thinking today I'm going to prototype like a big piston cylinder, and maybe I will make a zoom pinhole camera out of one of these prototypes. Oh yeah. <laughs> and and with a pump you could make a zoom model that could get bigger or smaller as you need it to. Hmm. <laughs> like out of balloons? Sure. An inflatable model. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> it could even make semi lifelike or maybe zombie like movements. If you, you know, if you had a, a sort of a breathing effect with your pump. Okay. Um, I am trying to edit myself so I don't make a Netflix and chill joke on that one, but okay. <laughs> so, you no, know, actually, um, I was researching what type of 
you know, high volume, low pressure air pumps there are out there. And a lot of them were like weird sexual pumps. A lot of them <laughs> were. <laughs> Should I take a time note and edit this out? Um, maybe uh, I should take a, a, a poll. No, uh, uh, I think medical research goes down strange rabbit holes. Yeah. Yeah, and that's so, medical. So to speak. Um, so, okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, we're, we're veering into yeah. that Canadian. That was almost. That, that was. <laughs> almost at that point that's what she said joke um that's right there's a okay, canadian so, podcast which specializes in these I, puns. exactly and, exactly and i think we need to exhibit solidarity for our neighbors hey, Alex. um okay so um here's something else that's along the same lines uh that i started doing and that is uh accepting uh, or, or with the idea of I'm stuck in a single location. Um, and now I'm very, I am blessed with the fact that I have two acres. I can go outside. Um, uh, you know, um, I can walk the dog, that, that type of thing. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, it, it can get boring pretty quickly, but the idea of, uh, a hashtag, um, and that is photography in the time of COVID, um, you know, uh, playing off, you know, love in the time of cholera, um, it, with the idea that you take pictures that you otherwise wouldn't because you're stir crazy and, uh, and post them with that tag. So I don't know if that'll ever uh, I don't care if it catches on. You know, I think I think it's a great idea. So I've been thinking this through for a while. Um, and one of the does, was it Close Encounters of the Third Kind that had the 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 dad who went bananas and started building yeah. the Devil's Tower in his living room out of everything yeah. around the house. Well, I yeah. mean, that's what a landscape photographer will have to do if they live in a in a constricted sure. location. Yeah, uh, like an apartment in New York. Sure. Right. Yeah, I, I think that that actually could be could really expand possibilities. I mean, you just have to get closer to your subject and, and tinker sure. with it. That there's I've been thinking for a long time that we've focused too much on cameras and not enough on subject. So the homemade subjects, this is the perfect time to oh, expand yeah. that idea. I agree. Dave, you were jumping in there. I was just saying you'd have to make the landscape out of mashed potato. I think that's what he does in the film, isn't it? Yes. Yes, he does. Yeah, you have to start with it with mashed potatoes. Yeah. That's good, um, and then you can eat it. Yeah. There <laughs> we go. Um, so, anyway, that um, participate as you wish. Um, if you guys come up with something else, um, you know, put it up on Instagram or uh, or uh, Twitter or wherever and uh, and let us know and and um, uh, I'd love to participate in some other uh, other like projects. Hey, Nick, uh, do you have any books? 
Uh, no new books to recommend at the moment. Um, okay. Uh, I do uh-huh. have I do uh-huh. have a shout out though. Um, yeah, yeah. We're at that we're, stage. We're well, so I've mentioned this before, but right now because um, many of us are spending probably a little more time online than normal, uh, I wanted to make a repeated shout out for Flickr, which has been neglected by a lot of people, but I'm I finding. Agree. I'm finding it's still the best place to actually view and sort images and to search for other people's work. And, and I'm finding that, that on a large screen, your desktop screen rather than yeah, your phone or tablet. Right. And I want I'm finding that uh, the fact that most people have taken all their social um, and showing off uh, stuff more into Instagram and Facebook, it's actually made Flickr an even better place to follow specific photographers in depth because it's not watered down by the onslaught of self-promotion and all the other things that are out there or the or the political wrangling that that tends to infuse the other uh, social media it's really kind of a place of pure photography and i follow a small number of photographers and have for a long time so that i get to know them and get to understand what they're doing and what their part of the world is like and uh that's very very valuable right now um that you have this this other place to go to sort of focus on what you care about most uh what so and, I, I encourage and, people and, to, to remember okay. that Flickr is still a great place for photographers sorry i wanted uh, i i just wanted to say um it is um when i want to just look at pictures as opposed to the funny memes and the nice little videos and the uh, all the stuff that comes through on Instagram, I you know uh, I I go to I go to Flickr for for photos um, and because you can really easily control who you're following, you can um, see some you know real quality work mm-hmm. and it's. It's nice to see the continuation of, you know, I'm going to put in air quotes um, or we can, you know, for our British friends, inverted commas, um, you know, normal photos. Um, and that's something that's really nice. And I uh, I fully agree. I uh, do support Flickr a whole lot on that. Um, any other shout outs, Nick? Uh, that's it for for right now. Uh, other than to say that um, that what we are sort of gnawing around the corners of in this podcast is that in exceptional times, there's an opportunity to sort of uh, step back and see the bigger picture. And that's happening. Yes. And I, I think that's a really positive thing. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, Ethan. Um, I got a book. I want to shout out. Can I do a book? Of course. <laughs> okay. So, okay, here's Books my book. Are <laughs> okay, yes. Um, I recently started reading The Revenge of Analog by David Sachs. Um, it was very interesting until I actually had it checked out under Laura's library account, and it was overdue, and she couldn't renew it anymore because I took like three weeks to pick it up. And then she insisted on returning it to the library. So I went with her so that I could check it out again. And the libraries are shut down for a full month. Uh, so I can't finish reading it. I might order one on Amazon. But um, from the first 20 pages, really interesting book. Um, it's kind of about why um, 
why David Sachs, the author, thinks um, you know analog technologies are interesting and worthwhile. Some of which I think mm. I would agree with. Some I might argue with. Um, I'm generally contrarian, but um, it's nice to hear those things voiced because it's often something that I wind up being asked about why, and I often don't have such a good answer. And I think mm, I should have thought a little bit more deeply about this because it comes up pretty often. And it's something that I, I clearly feel one way about, but um, not being able to explain myself makes me feel personally very stupid often. Um, <laughs> well, I, well, I think that sounds like a, <laughs> sounds like a book I'd like to read a lot. And one thing that I always come to in this discussion is people tend to talk about analog versus digital in, in photography as if that's two sides of, you know, those are the two polar sides. But coming to this from an even more basic analog background with drawing, I began with drawing rather than with photography. Um, analog photography is kind of in the middle in my point of view. <laughs> and, you know, real analog is, is, a, is a burnt stick and a it, smooth surface. <laughs> you know, interesting. Okay, I do have a, a shout out. It's... Um, I don't know the guy's name, but it, the YouTube channel is Wood and Graphite. And actually, I just discovered it um, the same month that he ended the channel. But it's, it goes back. And it's the Internet's number two uh, wooden pencil channel. Uh, and and it, basically, he just goes through and reviews pencils. It's very embarrassing that I've found myself down this rabbit hole. But um, he talks about pencils. And, and the... And that's it, right? His whole channel is about pencils. He's got that's wonderful. Uh, and he starts out everything with uh, the tagline: "Wooden graphite analog is not dead," uh, and as the most analog of things, <laughs> pencils. All right. Um, yeah, I have a link for it in uh, the show notes, so we'll have that. Uh, Dave, who do you want to shout out to at about? <laughs> Um, well, I, uh, I found a guy on um, on Instagram a couple of weeks ago. I was, I was just kind of thinking about um, uh, self-developing cameras and things. And he, this this guy, I think his uh, user was Beaver eighteen o one. I think um, I've got it written down anyway. Uh, and he was using um, a, a method I hadn't seen before, which is a sort of printing out paper um, instead of a film. Uh, and had a, a chemical accelerator, which was um, sodium sulfite or ascorbic acid, I think, uh, thickened with uh, a dampened gum to make it sort of paintable on. So you paint this um, uh, accelerator onto the printing out paper, you make your exposure, and then you wash and dry it to reduce the sensitivity, and then you scan it. But um, I don't think they last, I think it's, it's not fixed. Um, but the exposure times were like 10 minutes at uh, f5.6 or something. Um, and there's no developer, there's no fixer, there's no darkroom. It just comes out with a, um, a picture straight away, which um, I thought was interesting anyway. Sounds great. Um, I have found, I did a quick search and I found um, uh, John uh, Beaver at Beaver1801, but it's on InstaGerms. Um, which is a little bit odd. Uh, so uh, I, um, I'll i put that in the show notes and I'll try to find the Instagram as well. So, yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, I definitely saw it on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I'll I'll see if I can uh, come up with uh, with the actual with the you know proper proper address or link. And of course, my you know uh, here I'm gonna rant. Here's a shout out to all the years that Apple tried to make a mouse and failed because Apple really made some crappy ass mouses mice. Um, finally, you know, the magic mouse two finally works, but then it just failed me. So I have to blow off the laser so I can uh, get to the next little bit. Oh, that didn't work. Um, I I found a website, which may be the same fellow, John Beaver Photography. um, And it is johnebphotography.com. And it looks like the same fellow. Um, he talks about ephemeral, the ephemeral is real. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's, it does a lot of like, um, photograms and stuff like that. I did find him on Instagram and it is, uh, Beaver1801. So, um, that is his Instagram. Well, this may be um, another great resource for people stuck at home. It sounds like a way to make your own photo paper with, uh, is this a type of print printer paper that you're describing? No, it's printing out paper. It's sort of like um, old-fashioned contact print that you put out in the sunshine. So what, okay, you're calling it printing out paper. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that physically is. I think it was just a, it was a very slow uh, photographic paper. You, I, I don't know if you can still buy it, actually. But, oh, um, I see. Contact uh, paper. Or yeah. Contact printing paper. Not like the type you put on your shelves. So there might be something like that from Freestyle that p- kids still use for projects, that kind of thing. Uh, probably Rachel from Sunny 16 is aware of it. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Um Okay, I have uh, a couple of shout outs. Um, uh, most of all to uh, Graham Jago of uh, Sunny 16 podcast. He is at Myopic Me um, on uh, Instagram. And um, there's also the sunny16podcast.com if you want to find them. Um, he, I sent him a Kraken and, um, he talked about it quite a bit on a show that, um, was, uh, a bit ago now that, you know, cause it'll take us a while to get this podcast out. So, um, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for that. I appreciate it greatly. Um, Dave, how do people get a hold of you? Um, well, I, I'm not on Facebook or anything like that, but um, I'm I'm on Instagram. I think you already have my Instagram handle on there, right? Uh, the Walker eighty, um, or Dave the Walker at gmail dot com. Okay. Uh, was there? Uh, okay, I have to ask about the eighty. Were there seventy nine people ahead of you? Yeah, it's a long queue. Uh, no, <laughs> it's just the year I was born. <laughs> I, I, I made the Instagram account before I thought I might use it, so I, I didn't really care. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, Nick, how do people get a hold of you? Uh, well, so there's – we have a, a – is that uh, email address associated with our website still, <laughs> still functioning? Oh, my God. <laughs> Nick at homemadecamera.com. 
So that's still valid now. You haven't unplugged that. I have not done anything to that. Okay. Um, I did. I did reset your passwords when we had that um, uh, attack. Ethan, did you ever see that? Yeah, I needed to use it to get in to upload the show yesterday. Okay. Okay. So. Uh, so we might have a better time trying to reach me through Flickr, uh, where I'm Nick Lyle, or Instagram, where I am A-V-Y-N-I-C-K, Abby Nick, uh, on Instagram. Those possibly are more direct routes, uh, depending on how that email thing works out. I never seem to get anything from that. So either I'm not looking at it or no one's using it. Not really sure which. Um, might be easier to, to reach me through those other sources. <laughs> Okay, I am Graham at HomemadeCamera.com, and um, I am Graham Homemade Camera on Instagram. Uh, Ethan is Ethan at CameraDactyl.com, and CameraDactyl on Instagram. Have I missed anything? Yep, no, that's it. <laughs> okay. Um, and we want to thanks, uh, we want to thanks, Robbie. Um, uh, thanks, Rob. Thanks go to Robbie Cribs. Is it Robbie Cribs or Cribs? That's correct. Yeah, Robbie Cribs. Um, from Cribs. Soundtrap Studios. Right. Soundtrap Studios. Um, Created the music that we us. use. Yeah. Thanks, <laughs> thanks Robbie. Robbie. Thanks. <laughs>